If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Will Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, lots going on today. The big news, the big news, the big news is um, a uh, Quebec judge has been uh, picked to lead the public inquiry after the Prime Minister and Liberal Party dragged their feet for months saying we don't need one. And then, of course, the whole David Johnston fiasco and such. So um, fascinating that uh, this is finally coming uh, to a head. There's rumors floating around that uh, she is not uh, uh, Justice Ugg, I believe, um, wasn't the first one to ask, uh, to um, uh, to be approached for the job. She has no national security uh, or intelligence experience, but uh, it sounds as if some may said have said, nah, I'm not into that. Thanks anyway. I don't need the hassle. We saw David Johnston go down in flames. Uh, so anyway, and the whole objective is to look into interference of the last two elections. So this, as two incredibly damning polls come out against uh, the prime minister and his party, and we've seen this over the last several weeks and months and such, in uh, this one from Angus Reid on who would make the best prime minister. This is from Angus Reid. 32% say the conservative uh, leader. Uh, 17% say the liberal leader. 15 Jagmeet, Jagmeet Singh. 11 can't say. And 26% say none of the above, which means they'll be staying home. So that's the Angus Reid poll. Uh, 32% for the Conservatives, 17% for the Liberals on who would make the best Prime Minister. This is really damning as well from Abacus data. Millennials, young people, Millennials twice as likely to vote Conservative over Liberal. If only Generation Z or Z and Millennials voted today, Justin Trudeau and the party would fall to third party status. That is unbelievable information from a cohort which a a a demographic which literally saw the prime minister uh keep his seat in the last couple of elections coming in of course way back when with a a majority and then losing that to a minority and then losing that again uh, less again uh with an even uh, smaller minority so fascinating that we are where we are and millennials uh if gen x and millennials sorry, Gen Z and millennials were the only ones to vote, uh, the prime minister would be in third party status. It'd be interesting to know then what um, (laughs) uh, uh, what the other age groups are thinking. Anyway, the Grain Belt Review continues to be underway. Uh, Forget right now, we need to plan for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and I hope those discussions will be held. All right, but uh, Dominant LeBlanc, Intergovernment Affairs uh, Minister, uh, broke the news today about who is uh, the person who will be leading the public inquiry into alleged appearance into our elections, not only with the Chinese Communist Party, but also Russia. The government of Canada, with the support of all recognized parties in the House of Commons, will appoint the Honorable Marie-Josée Hugg, a judge of the Court of Appeal of Quebec, to lead a public inquiry established under the Inquiries Act. 
And what is the job or objective of the justice? Justice Ogg will be tasked with examining and assessing interference by China, Russia, and other foreign states and non-state actors. And what about the flow of information? Many are concerned the justice can only do with the information that she has handed. And if that is held back, we end up with another David Johnston situation. In addition to examining and assessing interference by China, Russia, and other foreign state and non-state actors, Justice Ugg will also look at the flow of information to senior decision makers, including elected officials. All right, so that's something that the opposition definitely wants to know, because let's not forget um, that the uh, there was interference in the last two elections from the Chinese Communist Party, and CSIS and intelligence and such says the Prime Minister's office did get the information, but for some reason ignored it for the last two elections, or it got lost in the sauce, or whatever happened. So uh, it's not only a case of how much these places, these nations are interfering and in trying to upset our democracy, it's when did the Prime Minister find out about this, and why didn't he do anything about it uh, over the course of the last two elections? So I, I think that's really what a lot of people want to know, is because this is it certainly appears at this point to have favored uh, the Chinese Communist Party would like to see the liberals in power uh, more than they would the conservatives. So uh, we'll see how this all pans out. We'll see uh, what we end up with at the end. But I, I, I'm not sure it's it's uh, a coincidence that all of a sudden, after months and months and months and months and months and months and months of first saying we don't need one, then the whole David Johnston affair, and then, of course, uh, you know, uh, pushing it on uh, to the opposition and blaming them for dragging their feet and trying to find a neutral body to do all of this. I would suggest that these two polls today that have come out from Angus Reid and Abacus, which do not paint the prime minister in a very good light, also had something to do with this because uh, in many situations he's seen as not doing enough so it'll be fascinating to see how this pans out and we'll talk about it over the course of the show you know we've we've certainly heard a lot about the airline industry uh, especially coming out of uh, the global pandemic and such and and shortages they've had and and uh, and frustrations from part uh, passengers and such uh, but this one uh, this seems to be a new low. Uh, outrage sparked by a passenger incident involving a vomit-smeared airplane seat reflects a broader frustration with flight operations in Canada, say uh, travel experts. Uh, meanwhile, the country's public health agency says it's investigating this recent episode. On Tuesday, Canada, Air Canada said it apologized to two passengers who were taken off a plane by security after protesting that their seats were soiled and still damp ahead of an August 26th flight from Vegas to Montreal. The public health agency said it is in contact with Air Canada and it cited its mandate to ensure anything brought into the country on uh, uh, ranging from planes to trains does not risk tra uh, transmission of illness and can be spread via contact with bodily fluids. So basically what happened was somebody was sick in this seat the flight before and it was not cleaned and it was still damp. From what I understand, uh, uh, and because you don't sit in a seat filled with that, you get escorted off a plane. Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, uh, president, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and with us now. Gabor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. 
Am I accurate with this, Gabor, that the, the seat had not been cleaned since someone yeah. had been sick in it? That is my understanding. Obviously, we weren't there, so we are relying on, on third-party reports. But my understanding is that the seat was not clean. The passengers acted respectfully and reasonably. Uh, it was a perfectly reasonable request to have the situation dealt with. And they were even quite flexible. What I heard is that uh, they were uh, willing to even travel on those seats as long as some blankets were placed on top. But at that point, already the pilot was determined to boot them from the flight. Wow. Uh, I, I'm sure, Gabor, you have heard of lots of stories similar, what have you. Have you ever heard anything like this? Um, the only similar story that comes to my mind is something that happened also in Air Canada flight about five years ago when a 70-plus-year-old grandmother was assaulted by a flight uh, attendant because she was uh, raising concerns of hygiene around around her seat. The plane was actually turned back and uh, landed, and, and she was escorted off by the police, which, of course, figured out that she did nothing wrong. But she actually, ha- I've seen photos of bruises on her arm. Mm. Um, to be kicked off a plane because you don't want to sit in a, a, a dirty seat like this, um, that, that, uh, that seems a little extreme. Uh, what could have been done? Could a crew have been brought in to clean it? You mentioned that the passengers were, were looking for solutions here and even said, just give us some blankets to sit on. Uh, they were even willing to do that. Why was that not accommodated? That, that's that's a very troubling question. So there are a couple, several questions here. First is, why was even the plane allowed to let passengers board the plane when there was such a biohazard on board and it wasn't clean? The next question is, when it was discovered why the flight attendants weren't just very sympathetic and, and, and you know why did they perceive it as some kind of challenge to their authority? And the third part is, why would a pilot make such a silly decision um, and, and even threaten them, as I heard, with being put on a no-fly list? In, in, a, in a case where clear the passengers were right, and 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 so <clears throat> perhaps perhaps the, 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 if we take a step back and look at a bigger picture, is how this type of authority of being escorted off a plane is being used and abused. On the one hand, we do understand that there are people who occasionally get drink too much or just have some psychological problems, and mm-hmm. they get belligerent and they shouldn't be up in the air because it's not safe. But just because there's some disagreement, it's a civil dispute, and and the and using security and police in that kind of context is something that we should be taking a close look at and and rethink. Is that really the society we want to live in? I would say no. I can imagine too that not only if you were these two passengers, but even those sitting in the seats around them, <laughs> that they would be offended by this as well because they would certainly smell it. So I mean, it's not just like it's these two. It is certainly offensive that way, but uh, you know the, the, what concerns me the most is is the level of bullying that these passengers had to endure, and that kind of abuse of authority and power, and then and the ease with which even um, security and police go along with whatever the airline says, even in a most clear situation where the passenger is right. Um, you talked about broader frustrations. Uh, does do you mean by their ability? I did not. I did not. It was the words of somebody else. No. And, okay. And, and yes, there is a there is some frustration and quite a bit of frustration about airlines not following the mm-hmm. law, not following their passenger protection regulations, about their passenger protection regulations protecting more the airlines and passengers and really having no teeth and the government not enforcing passenger rights as it should be. So in, in that kind of atmosphere of general frustration with air travel and how airlines treat passengers, this story has been acting like a has been like a lightning rod. It is really it's really every, all the anger is channeled. Mm toward that, this issue, because people feel a lot of frustration. Um, but what we are seeing here is something 
quite different. It's not simply a quality of service issue. This is this is a question of common decency. You know, we can we can all debate whether compensation is owed or not owed for for if, when the flight is delayed in some circumstances. But it's quite clear that what happened to passengers here is seriously wrong. And uh, that kind of corporate culture where it is not conveyed very clearly that this is not a way to treat passengers. When 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 uh, the crew members feel that this is can be acceptable, that is a far bigger problem, it, it, which transcends the issue of consumer satisfaction or, or, or customer service. So what about recourse for these two passengers and what happens to the crew? Um, I, the crew, I would hope that would see, would see um, at least a very serious... Uh, um, reprimand, possibly some suspension from their work, possibly termination. Um, that that is for uh, the airline to, to decide. Uh, but from the passenger's perspective, the airline breached the contract of carriage with them. It was a complete non-performance, and so uh, given the circumstances, because they weren't allowed to travel at all, the passengers may want to uh, to to take um, Air Canada to court and uh, seek punitive damages not just simply compensation for their losses of getting back to Canada, but this type of treatment is unacceptable. And of course, Air Canada will try to argue that because it was international flight, and international law doesn't permit punitive damages. But even though the passengers weren't offered alternate transportation, as I understand later, um, it, it there would be a strong case here for punitive damages because what happened to the passengers is not simply a, you know an ordinary damage, but something truly egregious where the court May and ought to express his disapproval of the of the airlines and airline employees' conduct by by an an award that goes beyond just just the usual general damages. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group. Outrage sparked uh, two passengers uh, told they had to sit in a vomit-smeared seat or get off. Uh, Gabor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. Obviously, Super Crawl is coming up, and that's a great time to get inside and see Hamilton's legendary Grant Avenue studio. Established back in 1976 and home to the likes of Gordon Lightfoot, Johnny Cash, U2, Sarah McLaughlin, has officially changed ownership to music and film industry pros Mike Bruce and Marco Mondano. This weekend, the studio, which is housed in a 108-year-old historic home, is opening its doors to the public during Super Crawl. So drop by 8 Grant Avenue and soak in a little bit of the history. Joining us now, Mike Bruce, owner of Grant Avenue Studio and is with us now. Uh, Mike, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. I do have to point out it's 38 Grant Avenue, not 8 Grant Avenue. Oh, man, typo. All right, thanks. I appreciate that so much. And I should also mention uh, everything else you're involved in. Partner at Studio 550, location manager for film and television, co-founder of Aeon, Aeon Studio Group and such. Uh, so, Mike, wh- why is this a good fit for you guys? Well, I, we we started off as musicians in the industry. I, uh, you know, I initially moved to the city to be a rock star and... Um, you know, when I realized that I needed a living, I kind of uh, fell into the film industry, and and so now here we are. You know, so many years later, and uh, and this opportunity came at a time when my son, who has been uh, producing his own music and and uh, engineering in his bedroom for the last six years, was ready to go to school, uh, and this opportunity kind of came up that uh, Bob Deutsch, the uh, the uh, previous owner, was you know, looking to kind of wind down and, and uh, trying to figure out what to do with it next. And, and so after some 
you know, some heavy thought and due diligence. Uh, we, we figured that it was just the right thing to do as, you know, passionate musicians and artists and, uh, you know, people who respect history and, and didn't want to see this place fall to somebody who was just going to turn it into apartments. Uh, you talked about your, your son and recording in, in, at home and such, and we know a lot of musicians do that. A lot of people do that uh, just with all sorts of, of art and such. Uh, what's the difference now with what he's doing and what has been going on at Grand Avenue for years? How do you bring those two eras together? The difference is that, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good stuff, uh, you know, coming up with a lot of good stuff out of their, you know, their home studios and that sort of thing. But there, you, you cannot beat um, being in an environment like Grant's or, you know, there's other great studios in Hamilton as well um, and, and Ontario and around the world. But you, you, you just kind of can't beat uh, being in that environment. It, it just adds a, an element of, of professionalism, you know, another level of experience and then you know the the gear you know like they're not going to spend a half a million dollars to put a you know a mci 500 uh with api preamps in their basements uh and <laughs> god bless them but uh you know they just the the gear and then also the expertise you know our, our head engineer andrew um you know and then previously amy king and bob doige and then right back to daniel lenoir like you know the experience of uh, the experiential knowledge of, of those types of people and what they can offer coupled with the gear and the environment. Um, that's what it really comes down to. That's, that's where you find the magic. Talk about the history of this place and, oh. and, and what you feel when you walk in. Well, that's, so that's the thing. I, I originally was kind of turned on to it. Um, um, a guy that I knew was, was partners in it and he wanted to, after COVID, you know, they, they wanted to get some revenue, uh, through there, you know, through film. Uh, so that's how I kind of came about it. Um, as soon as I walked in there, it, it just feels different. It's like, there's, there's, uh, there's nothing else like it that I've been to personally. I'm sure there are, you know, and like I said, there's many other great, great, great studios. Uh, some of them right down the street from us, but, um, uh, there's just, yeah, you just, you feel something, you walk in and you see, you know, the, the U2 gold record on the wall and Daniel Lanois pictures everywhere and Gordon Lightfoot. And then, you know, just the, um, uh, just the people like Bob and Amy, just, you know, uh, they, they kind of make it uh, more of a home, uh, as opposed to, uh, um, you know, a, a, a regular type studio is, is how I would describe it. It's, it's almost like the ultimate home studio. <laughs> being in a house and you know what i mean that's a great analogy because obviously uh, of where you're located uh bringing that all together it is it's the ultimate uh home studio yeah. why do did uh pros like this what is it about this is it that atmosphere uh it, it is the atmosphere absolutely um you know it was built uh by you know the lanois brothers bob lanois daniel lanois and and with you know bob deutsch and um, they just, they just had some really kind of guerrilla style experimental ways of doing things. Um, and then, you know, coupled with, uh, you know, Brian, Eno coming in and, and working out of there in the early days, which led to all these things. Um, I, I just, you know, they, they created an environment that was just very warm and welcoming. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just, you're in the middle of a nice little neighborhood and you walk into this house and it's all, you know, warm colors and, you know, Bob Lanois had, 
kind of decked out the control room in this, um, you know, this corkboard mosaic uh, that's, you know, very much an art piece. Um, so it's, it, it was just, it's the, just the vibe is very organic and natural and warm. And uh, yeah, and then you couple it with the people like I, you know, you can't, you can't have any, um, any real experience without the people involved as well. So, so I think it was just, it was a mixture of all that. It's, it's not just the place, but it's all the people involved. And, and now we're here to kind of, you know, start a, start a new generation of, of Grant Avenue uh, um, projects. Do you need to do renos in order to bring anything up to date? Like you talked about the romance of all of this and the ambience and such. You talked about the gorilla style. It was put together. Is it out of date? Do we, or is it, it's done? No, it's, it's done. They did a few updates in uh, 2016. They did, um, uh, they just changed some of the acoustic treatments on the walls um, to make it, you know, a little, a little, you know, more up to date inside. Um, but it's it's good to go. It's it's pretty turnkey, and so all we've done really is just add some equipment. Um, you know, traditionally they always worked uh, the radar system, which is a Canadian-based um, uh, recording system, um, and never really kind of delved into the electronic uh, stuff like Pro Tools and and Cubase mm-hmm, and Logic mm-hmm. Audio. So we've we have not gotten rid of anything everything is still there the way it was um we've just added so we've added you know some outboard equipment some like i said uh, you know a mac studio um and then the only other thing that we did is upstairs the office uh, what was previously the office we've turned into a writer's lounge um so you know when people come in uh, to record uh, they have a place to go if they want to work out some, some music or just relax and get away from everything uh, and then we've turned the um, uh, we've renovated the uh, the, the editing suite, um, so now we can you know offer um, you know a, a writer's room that people can rent hmm. out if they want to rent the main room or if they want to go work at something and and you know just and do some little recording and uh, and as well as mastering. All right, we've only got a little bit of time left, uh, Mike. Talk about what is happening during Supercrawl. This is pretty cool. You're opening the doors for people to come in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are curious and, and as we were, and uh, we want to welcome people in and, and let people know, you know, dispel any rumors that, you know, it may have closed down, um, you know, or, or just, uh, it, yeah, we just want people to see it. We want people to know it's there. We want people to see the museum, the rich history, that sort of thing. And, and then uh, we also have a booth set up at uh, uh, Supercrawl. We're going to have a booth set up at, at James and Vine, and we're going to have a little, a uh, little busker station set up uh, so that if people want to come by and, you know, grab an acoustic and, and you know, sing a tune or two, um, you know, we welcome that and, you know, really just kind of help build the community and, you know, uh, you know, and, and try and become, uh, you know, add on to the, the already rich community, arts community that is in Hamilton. Mike Bruce with us and along with Marco Mondano have taken over Grant Avenue Studios and coming up Super Crawl this weekend you can pop by and soak in some of that history. Uh, great idea Mike. Good luck with this moving forward. 
Thank you so much. Beckett Fine Art Gallery on Lock Street has uh, always featured local artists and has a brand new show featuring the works of uh, Dan Lenoir, Tom Wilson, and Steve Mann. Steve is also showcasing a portion of his personal collection of teenage head men- uh, memorabilia that he has collected over the years, and some special people will be in attendance tomorrow as well. To talk more about all of this, Thomas Beckett with us, Beckett Fine Art Limited, 196 Lock Street South in Hamilton, and here now. Tom, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Start. Wonderful to be with you. This is a very cool uh, exhibition you've got going here. Uh, how, how do you decide what goes into something like this? Because I'm guessing there's more there than what you have room for. Yeah, for sure. It's It's been an evolution and it's been uh, in the making for uh, about a year and a half now. So working with Steve Mann of Teenage Head and we put the idea together and he wanted to invite uh Tom Wilson and Dan Lanois, all old friends, music buddies from the past and and still work together. And so that's how it started. And then we developed the idea of Love Hamilton, which is the title for the show, because we're all from Hamilton. Um, And so that's how it came together. So uh, give people an idea of what they can see when they come in. What are you featuring? Yeah, so I've got a a great lineup of Tom Wilson's paintings. He's got a guitar and some paddles, beautiful oil paintings in in Tom Wilson's uh, one-of-a-kind style. I've got three beautiful photographs uh, by Dan Lanois, very abstract and uh, very ethereal like his music. And uh, and then some beautiful new silkscreen prints by Steve Mann uh, that he did down at the smokestack uh, with Lane at the smokestack in in the cotton factory. So uh, we also have uh, a great lineup of paintings by a friend of Steve Mann from back in Westdale days, seasoned veteran artist, uh, Gary Spearin. And he did a focus on works by Gord. Uh, Gord Lewis, uh, guitar player for Teenage Head. Um, also have uh, some beautiful pieces by John Coburn, who is also a Westdale High School friend of the band's, and he he did some wonderful pen and ink and foil paintings um, of the show. And then Maggie Shepard, uh, wonderful artist from Hamilton, she has a stunning piece of down at the uh, Hamilton Harbor and Nocturne Reflections, a uh, beautiful steel company scene. And there's a beautiful painting by David Beckett of the Five Star Cafe on James Street North. Hmm. So when you assemble, uh, bring together all of this work from various Hamiltonians, do you see a common thread, a common denominator at all? or Is, is that possible? Yeah, well, they're, the, the musicians, they're all related uh, from their past. and But, they're you know, each artist is individual and to their own. So there's, uh, you know, it, it's just a wonderful to see a cross-section. The artists are their, uh, you know, they make their own music, but they also make their own art. And it's very individual, each, each artist's work. But it's wonderful to see them all together. And then the teenage head memorabilia that Steve's archive 
is vast. And so I was up at his home and we went through uh, lots of things and selected the right pieces for this show in my space. So there's some amazing photographs of the band and old posters. And Steve was a, a great artist all through his life, starting in high school. And he was the real art director of the band and, and put together a lot of those early posters that we all used hmm. to see in the 70s and 80s, uh, announcing the band's uh, next concerts and that kind of thing. So talk about what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow we've got Steve Mann and Dave Rave, who's the lead singer for Teenage Head, and uh, Gary Spearin. And so they're going to be here in the gallery between 1 and 5 Friday and um, here to meet you know fans and uh, collectors and, and anyone interested and curious just to check out the show. Thomas Beckett with us, Beckett Fine Art Limited, 196 Lock Street South, a cool exhibition in there with uh, the work of Dan Lanois, Tom Wilson, Steve Mann, and some cool memorabilia uh, from the Teenage Head era as well. Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Good luck with this, and congratulations. Good for you. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hope to see you all. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. New polling from Angus Reid. One of a couple of polls out uh, today that just are not uh, showing the federal Liberal Party in a positive light. And this one from Angus Reid. Which federal leader Canadians think would make a better prime minister? And the results are 32% for Pierre Polyevra, 17% for the Liberals, 15% and uh, Justin Trudeau, 15% for Jugmeet Singh in the NDP, 11% can't say, and 26% none of the above. To talk more about all of this, John Rowe, Research Associate with Angus Reid, and here now. John, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I hope you're well too, Scott. Are you surprised, John, at the speed in which these have flip-flopped? Uh, why? How do you explain it? Well, we've kind of seen a slow deterioration for the Liberals since the election in 2021 of kind of both support as well as um, appreciation for Justin Trudeau. So we've seen his approval rating drop over the kind of subsequent months since the election. Uh, we've seen kind of liberal, past liberal voters kind of leave the party and say they wouldn't repeat their vote for the Liberals again. So it, it these numbers kind of looking at, say, who would be the best prime minister, uh, perhaps given the kind of trend that the Liberals have been seeing over the last Last few months uh, isn't aren't really too surprising, I would say. At what point do parties take this seriously, or are they uh, behind closed doors? Because we hear many see there's only one poll that counts, and that's the one on election day. Yeah, I think there, there's quite a bit of that, like truth to that, in the sense that it is probably two years out from an election, though who knows what will happen given we do have a minority government. Uh, there's a lot of expectation that this uh, agreement between the NDP and the Liberals will last the full set. <clears throat> to uh, but uh, yeah, I think there is maybe there should be some concern from from the parties on this. Uh, you did see a cabinet shuffle prior to uh, like in over the summer, as well as that uh, retreat just a few weeks ago for the Liberals to kind of look specifically at the housing issue and things like that. So there does seem to be some movement on their end to try and address what probably what they see as kind of declining popularity. Is this going to be an, an election uh, on who we like or the one we don't like? I just want a replacement. I want change. 
Well, it's starting to feel, I think, that there is kind of maybe a bit of fatigue with with the liberals in general. And even among, I think, people that uh, previously voted liberals. And I think when we when we look at this poll specifically, uh, people who voted liberals in the past aren't nearly as um, likely to choose Justin Trudeau as the best prime minister option as, say, people who voted conservative in the past. So 77% of past conservative voters say Pierre Polyev is the best prime minister, whereas only 45% of past liberal voters say Justin Trudeau is the best prime minister. So there does seem to be maybe a bit of tiring of Justin Trudeau, maybe a bit of fatigue with this current liberal leadership. Uh, 20, uh, 26%, none of the above. What does that say? Well, I think it, it, it kind of speaks to how maybe disliked some of these current uh, leaders are, uh, with the exception of Jagmeet Singh, who kind of consistently pulls uh, with a lot of positive appraisal, um, more positive appraisal than negative appraisal, typically. Uh, both Trudeau and uh, Polyev are viewed negatively by half or more Canadians. So in the case of Trudeau, 66% have a negative approval rating of Trudeau. So there is a bit of, I think, uh, kind of negative views towards our current leadership, our current political leadership. So a lot of people look at these options and say, you know, I, I wish there was somebody else to pick from. Will, does this necessarily mean or does it mean that there'll be a low voter turnout for the left? Uh, I think that's hard to say at this point. Uh, there is, I think, one thing to kind of point to that would probably maybe say that there would still be quite a bit of people looking to turn out to vote if an election were held. Uh, we did ask people what what uh, government would they feel is best for the next four years of Canada, as well as which government do they fear? Which one do they feel is going to be the worst? And 43% of Canadians say that the worst option for a government over the next four years would be a conservative majority. So there is, I think, quite a few people out there who wouldn't want to see uh, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives in a majority position and perhaps would inspire them to vote kind of against them, whether that's for the NDP or the Liberals. What do you say about Jagmeet Singh and the NDP obviously doing the deal with the Liberals to keep them propped up and in government? They seem to have flatlined. Is this benefiting the NDP in any way? I think it's really hard to say. And I think part of the problem for the NDP uh, as well as the Liberals, is that it's kind of hard to predict which way that vote will go. So, like, if an election came uh, and the Conservatives were in a position to potentially form majority government, w- would we see a flight of NDP voters to the Liberals as, like, kind of a stop the Conservative vote? Or are the Liberals kind of afraid that maybe with so much fatigue around Justin Trudeau that people are going to abandon them for the NDP? And we haven't really seen that as much kind of in, in the numbers that we've seen. Uh Typically, I think the NDP end up always kind of polling better than they actually do perform at the election wise. And that's what we've seen kind of historically. Uh, As Justin Trudeau's numbers drop, uh, is that going to drag the NDP down considering the partnership? I think that that's also kind of hard, hard to predict as well. And it seems that for the most part that. Uh, NDP supporters are somewhat they they like kind of this current arrangement of government, um, though it. So it's yeah, it's kind of hard to tell whether or not mm-hmm. liberal, like I guess the drag of Justin Trudeau will affect the NDP as much. John Rowe with us, research associate with Angus Reid, new polling on which federal leader Canadians think would make a better prime minister. John, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Yesterday, we were telling you about the Rolling Stones' new album and single coming out. You just heard it there. It's called Angry. The album uh, drops October 20th, I believe. It's called Hackney Diamonds. To talk more about all this, Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator, and here now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
um, great. It's always great whenever the Rolling Stones decide to put a new album out, considering that they really haven't in a long, long time. And, you know, my goodness, Eric, they're like pushing 80 if they're not there already. And I don't know what your thoughts are on this song, but this is Vintage Stones. It's classic. It sounds great. Yeah, it does sound great. And in fact, if you've seen the video, or for people that yeah. haven't, it has Sydney Sweeney, who is an actress from Euphoria, and they use AI technology in it with Sydney um, kind of swirling around and lip syncing a little bit to the song in a car going down Los Angeles Sunset Strip, passing billboards of clips of the Rolling Stones from past mm. years. So you see Mick Jagger strutting in 1968 and then Keith Richards playing on a billboard using clips from 1975 and so forth. And it's really good. And it, it really reminds you that this is an event that when the Rolling Stones decide to get together again, and they have for the first time since 2005 releasing pretty much new music in the way that they are right now with the new album, that this is historic. And that, um, you know, there's a lot of baggage, there's a lot of history, and there's mm. a lot of good and bad times that come along with, an, with the Stones album. And that video just reminds us of just how long they've been doing this for. And they don't seem to, like, they don't hesitate to look back and, and, and draw on all that stuff, which is great. It was, it's obviously, the video, as you said, very, very well done. Why now? What, why are they doing this now? Um, I, I think mostly because I think Charlie Watts, the drummer, when he passed away a couple of years ago, um, I think it really set Mick and Keith into a moment of, we need to keep this going as long as we want to and while it's still fun because this isn't going to last forever. And while it's okay for B.B. King or Muddy Waters or Chuck Berry or all these amazing blues guitarists and performers to tour well into their 80s, um, it was never okay for white rock and roll bands to do it. We were always embarrassed or making jokes about how old they were. But the fact is, though, that they still continue to stretch the limits of what we think a rock and roll band could be doing well after their hits have kind of dried up. And here they are with their 32nd album uh, in their history. So the, the video reminds you that they are always going to be considered one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. And the fans will certainly agree with that. And the music critics as well. Right now, all the music critics, they use the same trope and the same line for every Stones album. This is the greatest album that the Stones have put out on Main Street. They've been saying this for 40 years, and certainly, you know, the worldwide attention to that song, Angry, has made music critics and fans a little bit more wet with salivation and, you know, thinking that, oh, maybe we'll see a tour in 2024, too. You bring up a valid point here, too, Eric, because a lot of these bands are well past their best before day. They're long in the tooth. Sometimes you look at it and you go, oh, you know what? Time to hang it up. But these guys keep being able to pull it off. Yeah, and it's one thing for if you're a band, look, pick any rock band that is still going on tour. They'll always say to a T, this new album that we have is the best work we've ever done. And we're super <laughs> proud of it. And then they play seven songs from the new album on tour. And that's known as the bathroom break for like 90% of the people. Mm. The Rolling Stones don't have that for so many reasons. But basically, whenever there's a new album, people treat it like this could be the second 
version of the stones that we all loved back then. There's always that glimmer of hope that it will be as great as Sticky Fingers or Exile or Tattoo You. And so they're in a very rarefied era where the most, if not every single other rock band on the planet never gets this much attention when it comes to the live album, when it comes to a brand new studio album. What do we know about this album other than the first single, which was Angry, which we just heard? Uh, Lady Gaga, I'm hearing, is on this. Steve, uh, Stevie Wonder? Yeah, uh, Paul McCartney is rumored to be on it, as, long as, uh, as well as Stevie Wonder. Lady Gaga is definitely on this album. Um, they cut 23 songs from it, deciding to whittle it down to the 12 that are going to be on the final album. So that means that they've got another... Um, 11 songs in the can that could be used for an expanded edition or mm. a bunch of B-sides or um, a bigger release or maybe even the next release down the road. Um, and the Stones might be, you know, entering in their 80s, but they're definitely not going to go quietly. By all accounts, this is a pretty emotional, ragged and rough and ready album. How is this viewed by the music industry, young and old? Um, not Look, it, I... I, I I mean, yesterday, their record label, Universal, was all hands on deck all day. Um, and Universal is the biggest record label in the world. Um, they weren't doing anything except for promoting this record, sending out the, the press releases, sending out the music. Um, but the music industry is also looking at it like this is a really cool mixture of new and old. The guy who produced it, his name is Andrew Watts. And he cut his teeth on Miley Cyrus records and Justin Bieber records before moving on to Ozzy Osbourne and Iggy Pop. So he knows the gloss of music and how to make a song, but he also knows how to keep those rough edges around with Ozzy and Iggy. So we could get like, <laughs> we could get maybe the best Rolling Stones mm. albums in Days on Main Street. Wow. Uh, number three uh, in, in uh, trending in um, uh, uh, downloads and stuff, or sorry, shares, 8.2 million yeah. views. Like, this thing's taken off. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of the same numbers as when Mick Jagger went in the studio with Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and did a song during COVID. It kind of blew up like a rocket and then sunk without a trace about a week later. This hmm. is going to be different, though, because look, my daughter really couldn't name more than a couple of Rolling Stones songs, but she knows Sydney Sweeney really, really well from Euphoria. There's hmm. going to be a lot of people, um, teenagers, who are going to be watching the videos solely because she's in it going, who is she with all these old guys? They look like my parents. And then there's going to be Rolling Stones fans who are going to go, who is she? So there's going to be a good mixture of young and old kind of going to one another. Who are you? You know, that's always been the case with the Stones, though, hasn't it, uh, Eric? Yeah. In the sense that even with their opening acts, they always picked bands that were on the cutting edge or about to take off. Yeah, they picked Prince to open up a tour before he got massive. And Stones fans literally not just booed him off the stage, but threw garbage Mm. him as well in the early 1980s and one of their most popular videos um, uh, has anybody seen my baby from a couple of albums ago um, had a whole bunch of supermodels from the day that was in it so the stones can be very very sexy when they want to be and uh, um, certainly they've been on the cutting edge of, of who's the hot producer who's the 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 new songwriter that we should connect with they've always been 
keeping one foot in the present, but definitely one foot in those classic Stones era that we all know and love. Yeah, they pull it off. Rolling Stones have a new single called Angry Hackney Diamonds due out October 20th. Eric Elper with us, music publicist and commentary. Always fun, Eric. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. All right, lots to talk to Carmi Levy about, technology analyst and journalist, whether it's Apple's latest software that will have users access to, uh, will have uh, access to users' mental health and wellness features. This is, uh, you know, this, this is as cool as pictures, isn't it? Uh, as well as, what's the best way to deliver the Internet to rural areas of this vast country? Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist here now. Carmi, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. Before we get to AI, uh, there's an article we we meant to talk to you last time, I think, about, and that is, you know, there's lots of chatter about, especially post-pandemic, getting Internet to areas where uh, there aren't as many people, the population isn't as dense, whether it's north of cottage country and into those areas. Uh, what's the best way to do it? We've, we've heard recently, seen an article, $200 million, uh, to bring Internet to rural access that could have been better done using satellite technology as opposed to the standard way of doing this. What are your thoughts? You know, I mean, I think the government has been sort of kicking this football down the line for decades. We've been hearing about uh, leveling the playing field for rural internet access since there was an internet. And there's always been a huge divide. The closer you are to a major city, the easier it is to get high-speed access and affordable or relatively affordable high-speed access. The further away you get from a city, the harder that becomes to the point that that rural uh, areas in Canada, many of which are First Nations, are ill-served by internet. They can't even get access uh, to normal internet access, let alone high speed. Um, And so the government periodically trots out another announcement, 25 million here, 10 million there. Now it's $200 million to, to, to use um, to, to provide service to 66,000 rural households via satellite. Uh, but critics are saying that they could have taken that 200 million, used 50 million to connect them via fiber optic instead. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those, he said, she said, what is the best way? Honestly, I, I, you know, the government should have made this priority decades ago. We shouldn't even be having this conversation in 2023. The fact that they're, that they're bringing this into rural areas is, is a plus. Uh, because it hasn't been done before. Could it have been, been done cheaper with something like Starlink from Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX? Absolutely. But at the same time, let's not quibble over uh, you know the type of, of access that they're bringing to rural areas. Let's simply be thankful that it's happening and let's keep the conversation going because this division between digital haves and have-nots in 2023, that should not be a thing in Canada. Should we be using the best of both worlds here? What are the pros and cons of satellites versus standard Internet construction or infrastructure? I mean, the gold standard is certainly fiber to your house uh, because it is is the fastest. It's the most reliable in many cases. It is buried underground, so it is much more immune to things like weather uh, Mm -hmm. and environmental factors. Uh, So obviously, in the ideal world, every single house in Canada would have access to fiber optic uh, cable uh, in much the same way that you know we we take electricity for granted or we take running water for granted. Internet access via fiber should be a thing as well. But where it isn't, satellite certainly does fill in the gaps. There are certain issues with um, uh, with with performance in in inclement weather. Sometimes it goes out depending on what mm-hmm. kind of satellite service you use. Conventional satellite 
relies on satellites in geosynchronous orbit, which means they're kind of slow because it takes time for the signal to get up there and then get back. So if you're using it for real-time things like maybe robotic surgery, not really useful. And gamers oh. know this, don't use satellite for gaming either. But, you know, so it's a compromise and everything is a compromise. But at the same time, we kind of have to sort of go into these communities and ask those hard questions and 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 make the commitments to give them what they need in 2023 if you don't have internet access it's like you don't have uh, utilities like electricity or running water uh, that should just be one of those inalienable rights of being a canadian and we haven't mm. quite gotten there yet and i think we need to apple's latest uh coming out this month users will have access to mental health and wellness features unlike much uh, else currently available in a smartphone a mood tracker will ask users how they feel both in random moments pleasant unpleasant uh, what are your thoughts on this i mean you know on the surface scott it's a good thing any any technology any app that is built into tools that we already use and we, we will use ios 17 as the operating system on our iphones uh, is a good thing it, it takes mental health mental wellness and puts it front and center incorporates it into our day-to-day -day routine um, so it makes it visible and it, it it forces us to prioritize it which is absolutely beneficial but every time a company like Apple introduces features like this, my concern is always about the data that is, that is gathered in the process. And while Apple makes it clear in its terms of use statements that it will not sell or share this information with third-party partners, uh, it means they're you know somewhat more private, somewhat more trustworthy than other companies. Uh, I still worry whenever data is being collected because the potential for something to happen with that data is there. Uh, what happens if Apple changes its policies in, in future years? What happens if Tim Cook is no longer the CEO and they decide to profit off of all that information they've been collecting for so long? What if uh, I forget to wear my Apple Watch one day or I forget to take my iPhone with me and I don't no longer have my mental health tools with me? Um, you know, should should I be relying exclusively on my phone in order mm. to manage my mental health? Maybe not. So I think it it it's a good thing on the surface because it makes it uh, available and accessible. But at the same time, we're trusting Apple to do right by us, and we're leaning pretty heavily on this technology. Uh, we also should be coming up with non-technology ways of managing our mental health so that it isn't all in the Apple walled garden, that there are other ways for us to stay on the right side of the mental health curve. Valid points. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. What Apple is up to and getting your signals in rural areas. Carmi, it's always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Great finger, Scott. Thanks. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Tim Powers here now, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Uh, lots going on with politics today, including uh, two new polls and a public inquiry announcement. Tim is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. The, pri uh, the, the government announced today the public inquiry uh, is going to start uh, the same day that two damaging polls have come out, including one from Abacus Data. Uh, is that a coincidence? <laughs> God, I felt like yeah, I'm a Blue Jays batter, and that's about the only decent hit I'll get this year. Uh, you, you could see that. It's certainly going to be interpreted that way. I think they wanted to put this to bed, and they wanted to try and – I mean, they didn't know. Uh, they they don't certainly don't know when our polls come out. I doubt they know when the Angus Reid polls come out. But 
uh, you know, the, whether our polls were coming out today or not coming out today, it's not been a great uh, summer for them early fall. So uh, the, this story, maybe they think will bring, you know, at least closure to an issue that was a problem for them. You and I talked about it a lot, but I don't think it, I'll be bold here, Scott. The announcement today is not going to have any material difference on the next polls that happen, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody obviously has agreed with the justice who has taken the, the job of, of heading up this thing. There's rumors floating around that there was several asked and not all accepted. Yeah, the Globe Mail, I believe, reported that at one point. And if, you know, no reason to dismiss the accuracy of uh, of that. I, I mean, everybody saw what happened to the former special rapporteur, a well-respected Canadian, David Johnson. I mean, he was just eviscerated. Perhaps Mr. Johnson sort of thought twice before taking the job. So hardly surprising it took time to get somebody to fill this role. Um, the, the only thing that I would say thus far, I don't know this, this justice or much about this, this justice, and I suspect we'll learn more in the days ahead. But um, what's always important in these things uh, are the terms and conditions of what the inquiry will be. And I'd seen some early criticism that there are limitations there uh, on what uh, the justice can pursue. So I suspect we'll learn more about that if that, if that is accurate or not. But for now, I think Canadians, at least from a political focus, have moved on a little bit from this story. Uh, will that change if more we learn more about uh, alleged or actual Chinese interference? And interesting today, I don't know if uh, you guys have heard the clip yet, but um, uh, the prime minister, uh, I heard this on, on a CTV radio outlet, is this, is in is in Asia and have made the comment, and I'm paraphrasing here, that you know, things are starting to normalize with China. Mm. I thought that was an interesting time to say that today. Maybe that's because the environment minister was over there selling them on climate change. <laughs> Maybe that's he's the he's it. the savior here. Yeah, the, the, that's got to be it. Uh, I, I don't think things will. I mean, I guess it depends on what your definition of normalize. We're having a big fight here in Ottawa over defining what occupation means in relation to the Freedom Convoy leaders trials that's going on but normalize i think you know china it's the only thing you can say positively about china they don't really hide their intent uh to influence global politics in every level shape and form that they can including in canada uh dominant leblanc the inner uh inter uh, government affairs minister said that this justice will receive all relevant info uh that they want who decides what's relevant Again, that's, I, I, one assumes the Privy Council office and the relevant security officials in there as uh, a national security advisor. And, you know, the national security advisor has already appeared in this saga once or twice uh, before. So uh, that uh, that could be a point of contention. What's relevant and who approves those documents? I think all of this is, is still evolving. The other thing the government may get away with a little bit today with the conservatives gathering in Quebec City and the showcase moving, uh, the conservatives looking to showcase Polyev and the like, the conservatives might not dig their teeth forcefully into this until after that is done. And maybe that's part of what the liberals are hoping, too, that their 
they won't get necessarily in the immediate term the degree of scrutiny that uh, that they would normally get with the opposition showcasing themselves as a potential government waiting. You mentioned this earlier. Is like, Have Canadians moved on from all of this? They formed their opinion. They're baked in. Is this too little, too late? Like I'm even thinking about the convoy. Is anybody interested outside of Ottawa, the convoy, hearing their trials that are going on? I mean, it's just, where is it? Yeah, I mean, look, I uh, in our polls, I, I haven't, uh, what I have seen is the top issues. And I think this is true, again, of Manos, and Angus Reid, and the other credible firms out there. It's affordability, affordability, affordability. It doesn't mean it won't pop back up again. I mean, as you know, there was a the late late uh, spring, early summer. This was, was front and center as different stories emerged about um, Chinese activities around Canadian parliamentarians, both alleged and real. So, but for now, people are worried about uh, mortgages. People are worried about paychecks. People are worried about being able to afford daycare in, in places in the province of Ontario where the, the $10 program is not applying. So, yeah, this is not the top one right now. Will the public inquiry give Canadians the answers they're looking for, do you think? I, I, I guess we'll have to see the results, right? There have been yeah. public inquiries that have been very good and others that have been less so. Uh, you think of the Air India inquiry, for example, and it, it proved to be a very effective inquiry in outlining uh, a lot of the facts and uh, and bad decisions or bad choices that were, were made at that time. So, I mean, the difference here, let's not forget this as it relates to political criticism and back to your original question, because the NDP and the Conservatives have bought in on this justice, one would assume the level of criticism and intensity of critique mm-hmm. may be a little bit different. And that was you know, part of the, the, the plan here when the three parties did this. Why they didn't do this earlier uh, is, again, a mystery. But you're trying to figure out the wisdom of, uh, of liberal political decision-making over the last six months to a year, you pretty much conclude it is all a mystery at the moment. Tim Powers, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, a public inquiry announced today and two damning polls uh, for the liberals, specifically around younger demographics. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Bye. Merritt Stiles is with us, leader of the Ontario NDP, and here now. Merritt, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's such a, such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm not sure we agree on everything, Merritt, but we're going to have a great discussion okay. either way. Sure. Uh, so the one thing I love about the Greenbelt debate, it has exposed the fact that the other alternative lands, of which many experts have said to us, there's 20 to 40 years of that before we have to even go into the Greenbelt, the fact that none of those alternate lands have been developed either. And as a result, now we have, you know, a shortage and a, and a housing crisis on our hands. And I know as leader of the opposition, it's your job to focus on on what has gone wrong and, and what has happened with the Greenbelt lands, and rightly so. But won't the housing crisis and the Greenbelt debate, uh, will, will that not be debated for years, do you think, considering how far behind we are in housing for the next 5, 10, oh. 15, 20 years? Yeah, you know, I mean, we have a housing crisis, a massive housing crisis, and it's in every corner of this province, you know, and 
and you're right. Like we, we haven't done what needed to be done early enough. We're years and years behind. So there really is a crisis. But but the, and I think where you know um, not everybody is going to agree on on how we get there. But I think most Ontarians are in agreement uh, that you know with what all of the experts have said, including the, the government's own task force on housing, which is you don't need nor do we necessarily want to uh, develop in the green belt. I mean, those are, first of all, because they're protected lands, because they're important prime farmland, agricultural land, because it's important ecosystems we need to sort of mitigate flood, things like that. But also because those lands do exist. The land is there within existing boundaries, and and we have the tools uh, to make this development happen. And what we're doing is we're not exercising that fast enough. So, I mean, I, I would say uh, I think municipalities have moved a lot more quickly. There are a lot of development developers that are ready to go that have approvals, and they haven't started digging yet. Some of that is probably the cost associated right now. Um, but um, that's where I would like the government to be focused right now is getting that moving. This, uh, this Greenbelt development is going to be costly, inefficient, it's wrong. And at the end of the day, it's wasting precious time that we need uh, with the government actually focused on uh, what we can do right now to develop in those areas that are already approved. That being said, Merritt, when you don't mm-hmm. develop those alternate lands, what choice yeah. do you have? And, and again, I would suggest that playing this card as unpopular as it is, it really has jerked loose this discussion now and is really focused on the people and the organizations that have prevented these alternate lands from being developed over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Well, I do think that, you know, we are having an important conversation. That's true. I agree. I mean, I think that this has triggered something for a lot of Ontarians, but the truth is that most people are like living with it, right? I mean, uh, people have been in the last few years, especially noticing, uh, you know, their rent is skyrocketing. They, they're risking losing their, the roof over their heads. Uh, people who can't, you know, many people can't even begin to consider uh, buying a home, let alone also, ironically, like downsizing if you want to, because there's nothing available. So we really are in a crisis and we feel it um, um, all across this province. And so, yeah, I do think that's triggered that conversation. Um, but it doesn't make the development of the Greenbelt right. And that's why we're really, really focused. You know, we called on the minister to resign. He finally did that. Um, but I think this whole review that uh, that the premier has been calling for, uh, that they've now announced, is is a sham. I think it's a sham. I think uh, it's just a way uh, to waste time uh, because they don't want to return the land uh, because the, a lot of those developers are, are, are set to make billions of dollars. In fact, he's going to open up more of it. And, and that is, again, just not the right way to go. They're wasting time when we should be focused on what we can do right now urgently um, in places where we have existing infrastructure. So places where we have the transit, you know, the, the sewers and everything already ready to go. So we don't have to, you know, add the time and, and the expense is, to, is the review, to that. Is the review, though, merit not warranted every 10 years? Now, I understand we're doing it two years early, but maybe many would suggest, considering the crisis that we are in and the reasons we've just talked about, that it should be sped up. So how, how can you call the review a sham? I think it's a sham. Uh, first of all, yeah, I mean they're supposed to do a review every, you know. In, in, was in the was the one was the was the last one a sham too, Merritt? I, I think that in this case, the fact that the, that the premier has decided to to call a big review after we've just had, let's face it, two independent, you know, uh, officers of the legislature, watchdog, conduct massive uh, reports and, and investigations, and come out and say, you know what, you broke the law, you did the wrong thing. Uh, you know, this is not this is not a good use 
uh, of, of our money as Ontarians. This is not necessary. Um, they just had two giant reviews like that. So they do not need to review those. those well, we haven't had merit, merit, let, merit. Let's be fair. We haven't received a Greenbelt review. We've heard reports from the Auditor General in regard to the deals that the, the, that the Ford government were doing yeah, or apparently right. doing. So that's different from a review of what the purpose well, yes, and the objective I, of the, uh, of the Greenbelt is. Yeah. yeah, but I would argue. Um, that what they're doing now is they're delaying what they what the recommendations were, which is to put that land back. So they're delaying doing what was recommended by making it part of this giant review, which is going to take years. By the time that's done, they'll have started digging. And you know, and and the other part of it is, you know, the well, aren't they aren't they already digging? Aren't they already digging no. on those alternate lands? And, 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 and you know, no, they haven't I, you, yet. you know, I, I understand that that uh, that you want the land put back. I, I understand the government has no plans of doing that whatsoever. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I guess my question is, what's your or, or the NDP's housing strategy moving oh, forward? Yeah. How would you yeah. how would you solve this issue? Yeah. yeah. So, first of all, uh, we need to address housing affordability. Uh, we do need to build that missing middle. Uh, so we need to bring in real rent control. Uh, we need to uh, have inclusionary zoning instead of the exclusionary zoning that we're talking about. Uh, we've also proposed to actually get government back in the business of building some of this housing, which is what we used to do three years ago. It's why we have any you know, rent geared to income affordable housing right now. It's because it was built 30 years ago by federal and provincial governments. We can get back into that. It doesn't mean we do it all. I mean, obviously, developers have to be part of it. But we, we bring in inclusionary zoning that allows them uh, to do the kind of stuff we need them to do, but also requires them to build some of that, you know, making some of that affordable, right? Um, and we can end uh, land speculation. What the government has done is made corrupt deals. I, I have no hesitation on calling this corruption. Uh, people... Uh, you know, once you start passing around uh, brown envelopes with uh, your plans from developers directly, changing laws to accommodate a few developers who are going to make literally billions off of this, that's corrupt. So the first step, no matter what else they do next, the first step has to be to return those lands. And then I would say the idea that they want to then use this as an excuse to, and the premier and the minister were very clear about this. They want to now consider opening up other lands in the Greenbelt. Again, I cannot, I cannot stress enough that there is not one report, even the most recent reports done by the premier's own task force, that say that that's a good idea. It's actually a bad idea. It's taxpayers who are going to pay the price of developing on land where we have no infrastructure. It's going to get passed on to taxpayers. Bad idea. Uh, wait a second, Merritt. Merritt, uh, the, the housing minister has also said not only could they take more away, they could also put more back. Apparently, they mm-hmm. took away 7,500 acres or putting back 9,000. So, uh, again, uh, let me ask you this question. Do you think Ontarians care more about the debate surrounding the Greenbelt than they do having adequate housing for their kids you know, or for the next I, generation? I you know, what is interesting, I would say... I would say there's, I don't think it's really an either or, to be honest. Um, I'm, you know, I travel all around the province and even areas, uh, places where they're not close to the Green Belt. People are very, very worried, um, especially, you know, our farmers are worried that we're losing 319 acres of farmland in this province a day. And a lot of this land is our most important. In fact, the land that they just carved out is 
prime farmland. It's the most important Class A farmland that we have in this country. We cannot afford to lose it. And is, but Merritt, there but Merritt, to that. keep it in perspective, it's not about housing. The, I mean, that's it, the end of the day. No, it's no, not no, about no. housing. Carving up the green. I think. I think the majority. I think the majority of land in Ontario can be described as prime, a prime, prime no, agricultural no, it's not, land. It's, a, it's yeah. a very specific yeah. thing. Uh, Class A farmland. It's yeah. very specific. And so, what's all right, we're right. We're strictly out of time. Yeah. We're right out of time, Merritt. But I <laughs> really right. do appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Merritt Styles with yeah. us, leader of the Ontario NDP. Merritt, thank you so much. Be well. All right. Take care. Bye. Coming up next, Scott Bradley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am doing well. How are you? Uh, so far, actually, I'm exhausted. Yeah? <laughs> yes, really. Some, you know, when you bring in the mayor, when you bring in uh, Merritt Styles, you got to be on your A game because, um, you know, the, the whole thing is you got like seven or eight minutes to interview them and they want to get their message across and you want to get the questions answered, which are not covered with the questions they answer. And, and it's it, it's a challenge to try to make all of that happen. I see you've got an MPP coming on tonight to talk about uh, green uh, the Greenbelt development and and everyone that showed up at the open house in the hammer uh, the other day. Can we can we just go back to the first part rather than talking about that? Because I know you've been talking about the green belt a lot. Can we just go back to the idea? And I I only got to hear a snippet honestly, and I apologize of your interview that you just had with uh, with the leader of the NDP because I was getting ready for my own show. But so I'm not I'm not speaking about whether she answered questions or not. I didn't get to hear it enough to be able to say that. But I have argued this for a long time. And I she, still, she did for, uh, I will say right now, she did. She tried very, yeah, she did. She got her points across okay. and yeah, she was very, and she agreed with a lot of the stuff that I was saying. I would, I have argued this point for a long time in the house of commons or in the provincial legislature, there should be powers given to the speaker of the house that <laughs> if a question is asked of someone from the opposite party and they do not answer the question, but launch into one of their pre-written tangential things that has yeah. nothing to do with the question asked, the speaker of the house should be given the powers to say, I interrupt, hold on, hold on. That is not what you were asked. I'm going to give you another opportunity to answer what was asked. And if they don't do it, they are taken out of the house of uh, wherever it is, because to me, one of the things that makes people so cynical about government is politicians that have got, have decided these are the points that I am going to answer. And these are the points I'm going to raise. And it doesn't matter what the issue of the day is. And, and I got to say the one of, I won't say the, one of the absolute masters of this is our prime minister right now. Yeah. And you say to him, you know, wh how many, one of the famous ones was how many times have you spoken to the integrity commissioner about this? I can't remember which one of the things it was. And I think he was asked at seven consecutive times. And every time he said something like, we're always happy to talk to the integrity commissioner. And they said, okay, how many times have you talked to them? We're always happy to talk to the integrity. We need to have the speaker of whatever level of government it is, be able to say, if you are not going to answer the question, you have two options. You either answer it or you say, I plead the fifth or some version. I'm not going to answer that. So at least people hear <laughs> I you reject say, that question. <laughs> I, I, I'm not intending to answer the question, so I'm not getting up. But if you go into one of these other things that has nothing to do with the topic, you should be taken out. I, I not taken out, but I mean, excused yeah, yeah, yeah. from it, it, it. Now, again, I don't know if Merritt Stiles was answering your questions. You say that largely she was, but too often. 
too often we get these stupid answers that they've shown up ready to give as opposed to answering anything human. Well, I think a lot of the focus on Doug Ford is to distract away from the left not building. I, I just, I, I totally believe that. And I think we can do both. I think we can do all of this. But, you know, uh, another example of what you're talking about is the use of affordable housing. It's not just about housing. It's about affordable housing. Well, nothing is affordable. If you build a 1,000 square foot yeah, home with yeah. minimal furnishings and you only build 20 of them and there's thousands that are applying to, to buy that home, it ain't affordable anymore. So it doesn't matter. The size is completely irrelevant. Yeah. That we get stuck in this, but yeah, and, 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 and you know the same. And God it's bless the ND, points, Scott. It's talking yeah. points. It's the same. Look, it's exactly the same in the last election or the election before last or previous federal election when the middle class was the talking yeah. point. Yeah. We're here for the middle class, and then they created a minister of the Never middle class. Whatever happened the first, to the minister of the middle class? Well, because the first question that person was asked was, "Define your role. What is the middle class?" Yeah. And they couldn't. You're now the minister of non understanding of what you're the minister of, which made the whole thing look ludicrous. But again, you come up with these political talking points and every party does it. Every party comes up with these talking points. And when you call them on a lot of things like affordable housing, well, what's affordable? Uh, well, uh, it's, uh, affordable. Okay. What does that yeah. mean? Well, yeah. we don't know what it means. It's there. There's another one. Gr- great point. There's another one. Any politician who uses a catchphrase like that should by definition, by law have to come with a little thing to hand out and say, here's what I mean by this. Just so we all use the same language as opposed to just <laughs> throwing out words that mean nothing. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show again. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Well, Scott, after hearing you and Merritt Styles talk, I think a nap and a hug is earned. Who gets which is up for debate.